Exodus 16, verses 13 to 36. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the ones who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two a mer for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is the day of the Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left, and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seeds and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that it was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And Omer is one-tenth of an ephah. John chapter 6, verses 8 to 40. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, 
withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had been on the opposite shore of the lake realised that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him there on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up to the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Uh, well, we're currently um, in the middle of a series, or three quarters of the way through a series, on our vision and something we do each year. And um, you can see the vision up on the screen there. As I said in the, f in the first week, it's more, it's more of a kind of a, a way of life than it is this kind of big goal that we're aiming for. It's actually, well, the goal is that we become this as a people. It's a characteristic, it's a description of a characteristic of us as a people that we, we, want, to, we want to be. And in our first week of the vision series, I talked about the very high rates of people in our area of Australia that tick no religion, no religion on the census. And this postcode of Clifton Hill 3068 is the highest rate in the country and with about 52%. But what also is true is that Melbourne's inner north is characterised by people who also describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. They're people that take no religion but want to be spiritual and want to be growing in their spirituality. 
And there's two actual groups that I've identified in the inner north, I think, um, in, the, in the last seven and a half years at, at Mary Creek. And they're actually they're two groups that are, are wanting to be spiritually nourished. I, I found a, a group that I keep coming across is a group of Christians who actually want to be spiritually nourished. Are there people who have gone to church perhaps their whole life and yet they feel spiritually dry? And perhaps you identify with this group. I'm talking about the practicing Christian who yet still feels just undernourished for whatever reason. They, were, they long to be spiritually filled. And despite going to church and doing the right things, they don't feel nourished. And then the second group, the spiritual but not religious group, which McCrindle Research, if you have a look at this slide, it's a bit hard to see, but you can see the pink on the top there, 14% of Australia ticks spiritual not, but not religious. The people who do not identify as religious and yet consider themselves as spiritual. And they pursue that through the transcendent through different ways through perhaps through meditation or through yoga or through other avenues in the well-being industry. Well, to both groups, we want to be a church who nourishes these people, nourishes spiritual seekers. And the nourishment that we offer at Mary Creek is the bread of life, as we've heard just read out, Jesus Christ. Or if you want to look to another passage in John 4, the spring of water, that's the other imagery, the spring of water that will never run dry but wells up into eternal life. That's what we offer in our church and that's the kind of church we want to be, a church that actually spiritually nourishes people. But what do I mean by spiritually nourished? It means being filled with the right spiritual food so that you are growing spiritually healthy and strong. I'll just say it again. It means being filled with the right spiritual food so that you are growing spiritually healthy and strong. When we first got Harry the puppy, um, he was born on August the 1st, 2020, COVID dog, or as they call them, Cavoodles. He's a toy poodle. COVID doodle, COVID doodles, or whatever they're called. Anyway, shouldn't say that too many times, should I? The vet said, be careful of what food you give him, because not all the food in the supermarket is actually good for the little puppy. So here's the, the right healthy food that you should give him. Now, I think they might have been upselling us, I'm not sure. But the point is true that not every food that we consume is good for us. Some of the food we might really enjoy, like um, my favourite when I go to the restaurant, is always the twice-cooked pork belly, but not necessarily good for me. There's other food, though, which is much healthier and good for us. And um, it's important that we eat well. Well, the same is true for our spiritual nourishment. And I think it's even more stark than that. Because there's actually only one kind of food that is good for us. One kind of food that truly nourishes. And that food is Jesus Christ. We want to be people who feed on him. And not waste any time with any other lesser foods. Even though it might taste good. So being spiritually nourished, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean being free from suffering. That would be a mistake to think if you were spiritually nourished, you'd be free from suffering. It doesn't mean necessarily receiving an abundance of blessings, physical um, and material blessings from God. It doesn't necessarily mean that. 
It doesn't necessarily mean having constant mountaintop experiences in your faith. It doesn't necessarily mean not getting bored either. But if you are spiritually nourished, it will be reflected in your growing obedience to Jesus Christ. It will be reflected in what your heart desires. It will desire the things that God desires rather than things that God doesn't desire. It will be reflected in your ability to find significance and meaning in the everyday of life, the everyday activities of life. And it will be reflected in you having the strength and desire to take courageous steps of faith as well. The Bible is filled with spiritual seekers, people wanting the golden elixir of eternal life. So let's turn to John 6 and see what it says, because it's a good passage now, I'm going to focus on 28 to 40. We had the, the, the whole passage for context, and we even had the Old Testament for context as well. And 28 to 40 is where I'm going to focus. But just to give you a bit of a background to what we get up to before verse 28, you know, there's the, been the large crowd of 5,000 people who had just sat under Jesus' teaching and had an amazing time, got hungry, and Jesus feeds them a miraculous meal. He meets their physical hunger by serving up a miraculous meal, which started with five loaves and two fish from the lunchbox of a small boy. And Jesus had been able to multiply that meal so that everyone could be fed. Now, if anyone in the crowd had have had some spiritual wisdom and insight into the Hebrew scriptures, they might have known that what Jesus was doing was a kind of fulfillment of the time when Elisha fed a hundred men with 20 loaves of bread, as recorded in 2 Kings 4. What Elisha did in doing that pointed forward to the future Messiah who would come and abundantly bless people spiritually so that they would be filled and have more, more and more left over, which is what um, the words Elisha quoted. But the thing is, the people didn't have that kind of level of wisdom. And to be frank, if I had been there, I wouldn't have either because I'm not that smart and I'm not that wise. What they did do, which is probably what I'd do, is look back to another story, which is the story of Moses. And it's not necessarily wrong, but they were drawing the kind of wrong kind of conclusions. And they were looking back to Moses and the story of bread, the story of the manna from heaven, as we had read from Exodus. And this led them down a very different line of thought. After the feeding of the, of the 5,000, Jesus and the disciples retreated across the lake and the disciples saw Jesus walk on water. So there's another miracle. So we've had two miracles in close succession. And then once they reach the other side of Capernaum, they set up camp and the large crowd follows them around the next day and meets up with them. And this brings us to John 6, 28 to 40. Let's look at verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? So here we have a conversation, the crowd and Jesus. Now it's human nature to think that if we do the right actions, we will be spiritually filled. We will experience some kind of fulfillment if we do the right things, the right actions. That God will look favourably upon us, maybe, and give us what we need. And the well-being industry basically preaches this gospel if you take the right herbal supplements and you do the right amount of yoga, you will be spiritually fulfilled. I'm stereotyping. 
He's not a stereotype. If you, if you go to the real extreme and you follow Gwyneth Paltrow, who uh, loves to teach people about how to find fulfilment, you'll do what she, what she calls apotherapy. Apotherapy? She said, she told the New York Times, there's a thousand-year-old therapy of being stung by bees. She says she does it all the time. It's really good for you. The doctors in the room will say, don't listen to her. And even I will say that, and I'm not a doctor. Um, one of her other well-being tips is to go on an exclusive diet of goat's milk for eight days, which she claims is actually a diet that comes from biblical times, although I can't find it in the Bible. But it's apparently there somewhere. And her guide is the shaman Jurek Verret, who is also the boyfriend of Norway's princess uh, Martha Louise. It all checks out. It's all, you know, good stuff here. I'm only pointing out this sort of extreme silly example, not just to make fun, but just to point out, like, you can go into extremes and find all kinds of actions. The, the, the Gwyneth Paltrow example is the Kunidig example, but there's lots of things that are offered. If you do this, you'll be fulfilled. And this is what the people were thinking. They wanted to be acceptable to God, and they fixated on the idea that they could earn their salvation, so they're asking, what do we have to do? So verse 29, Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. He says the only thing that God cares about is that you believe in him. God's not as interested in what they do as much as he is interested in, in who they believe in, in their devotion to Jesus. He's not even that much interested in how much they keep the law. He's not actually that interested in what sins they've committed. He's not actually interested in their status in the community or their popularity or their wealth in terms of their salvation. No, the only thing that he's interested in in terms of their salvation is their desire to follow Jesus. Do you follow Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? And Jesus is saying, well, he's not saying it that explicitly. He's saying, you know, what does he say? He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And he's talking about himself. And those who have ears to hear would have got that in the crowd. Because it's only Jesus who reveals to us who God is because he is the only person who has been in the throne room of heaven. God has sent Jesus from the courts of heaven so that the world would be saved through him. As Paul writes in Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So it's not, it's not the observation of the law that you're saved, it's through your faith in Jesus. And most Christians know that because it's kind of the basic truth of Christianity and yet we still walk around with this idea that if I just do the right thing, I'll be spiritually fulfilled and God will love me. It's not right. And I can understand if you're listening to what Jesus is saying and you think, gee, and I can understand if the crowd thinks, this is a strange thing for him to say, say. It seems too good to be true that this is what is required to believe in the one God has sent. It seems like there must be a catch. It's, it's a bit of a shock that God would think this way. You know, and, and many people have pondered this for, for centuries. And one of the authors, the great authors that have pondered this is Dostoevsky. Now, I want to be totally upfront. I've never read any Dostoevsky, although during COVID I started The Brothers Karamazov and I got up to about chapter five and I have to return because it's about 150 million chapters. But um, I know that there is a passage in, the, in um, Crime and Punishment which sort of explores this kind of concept. It's a beautiful passage 
And even though I've never read Crime and Punishment, you might have. Hands up who's read Crime and Punishment. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. What a great congregation we have. Well, tick, you're, you're spiritually... No, no that's, that's exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. But anyway, Dostoevsky, here's a bit. At the last judgment, Christ will say to us, Come, you also. Come, drunkards. Come, weaklings. Come, children of shame. And he will say to us, Vile beings, you who are in the image of the beast and bear his mark, but come all the same, you as well. And the wise and prudent will say, Lord, why do you welcome them? And he will say, if I welcome them, you, you wise men, if I welcome them, you prudent men, it is because not one of them has ever been judged worthy. And he will stretch out his, stretch out his arms and we will fall at his feet and we will cry out sobbing. And then we will understand all. We will understand the gospel of grace. Lord, your kingdom come. So powerful. We are not worthy. And yet, if we put our trust in Jesus, we will be saved. Such a great passage. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a mystery. How could it be true? But it is, and I invite you to accept it and believe. But the crowd found it really hard to believe. They wanted a sign. So they asked him in verse 30, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's a bit surprising that they want more proof. I mean, they've had... The for goodness sake, they had the feeding of the 5,000 and the disciples had the walking on water, but maybe the disciples are standing back and not saying anything right at the moment. And Jesus had been doing many other miracles in the area that would have increased his fame, yet they still wanted another sign. And I think sometimes for those who are the Christians who are spiritually dry, sometimes what happens is you can find yourself forgetting all the amazing things God's done for you and you can just be focusing on the here and now. And that can be what is making you dry because you've forgotten how amazing God is and what he's done for you. At different times, perhaps, God's power and presence has been very evident in your, you and your life. But now, for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to be the case. So what you want is another miracle. Please show me a sign. You know, and people pray that way sometimes. And perhaps in his mercy he will grant that, but perhaps not. So the way forward, I think, if this is you, is to slow down and see God's power and love and beauty in the simple things in your life. And one thing that's really good to do when you're doing that is to get together with a friend or a family member or someone who knows you well and is, and is a Christian and to write down all the good things that God has done in your life and to give thanks the reason you need to invite a second person in is because sometimes it's really hard for us to see these things. Sometimes God has been performing miracles in your life all through your whole life since birth to now and you cannot see it and it needs another person to point it out to you. And this kind of act of gratitude is a way to return to Jesus and to draw your spiritual nourishment from him. The crowd before Jesus want to be really, really convinced that he is at least as good, if not 
better than Moses. No doubt they had fantasized about how amazing Moses was from how God responded to his request for food and provided manna in the desert. They want to see with their own eyes and believe. They don't understand how faith works. They, they bring up the manna from heaven story because in that period of Jewish history, they'd been understanding that the Messiah would repeat that miracle. And so that's what they're wanting Jesus to do. Come on, Jesus, do it again, but do it better. Well, verse 32, Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He corrects their misunderstanding by, of Moses by pointing out that it was, it was God who provided the manna, not Moses. Not only that, but that wasn't manna from heaven as if it was baked in the baker's delight from heaven as such. It was just everyday old manna. But actually, God has provided them the bread from heaven, and that is Jesus himself. And it's here on, in front of you right now, says Jesus. I'm here. And God continually gives them this bread. It is my Father who gives you, he says, who not gave you, but gives you the true bread from heaven. This is true bread, the bread that originates from God. It has life and it gives life. They had a materialistic understanding of what the Messiah would bring. But Jesus did not come to bring manna or satisfy any other materialistic expectation of people. So he's protesting against this false view of Messiahship and he's holding up a new, a more important spiritual nature of a life that he comes to bring. And it's easy for us to be just exactly like them. It's easy for us to focus on the material and not the spiritual. The reason why we might think we're not spiritually nourished is because we've not got the material things that we, need, we think we need. But actually what matters is the spiritual things. And it's interesting, I think, that often in less wealthy countries, the Christians are more, seem to be more spiritually alive. They seem to be more energetic. And even though they hunger physically, they praise Jesus. Just look at the Tanzania examples that we had earlier in the notices. You know, the church has grown from 50 to 270. The bishops planted seven churches. Things are just happening. Uh, they don't necessarily have the money to even put a ground on the a floor in their church or a roof on their church but they praise jesus nevertheless jesus offers so much more than your materialistic desires he offers life and life to the full but i don't think the crowd got this 30, verse 34 sir they said always always give us this bread they're just like the woman at the well remember the story of the woman at the well who wanted the living water but, but instead they wanted the, the, the bread of heaven and it sounds amazing, give it to us. The woman wanted her living water because she didn't want to have to go to the well each day. She thought, oh, it would be great just to have this endless supply of water. And the crowd wanted the bread because they thought, oh, we never have to go to the shops anymore, we never have to go to the bakery anymore and we can have this endless supply of magical bread. They were like the kids you know, in Willy Wonka, I think the movie that I quote the most in my sermons, it's the sort of story of my life, Willy Wonka. And, you know, they go to the everlasting gobstopper, that you, bubble gum that you chew and never loses the flavour. And they say, give it to us. Please, please, I want one. All the kids want one. Give me the bubble gum that will never lose its flavour as if it will fulfil all their dreams. Well, the crowd's just like that. 
They don't really see Jesus as their Lord here. They see him as some mysterious and unusual baker, the Willy Wonka of bakers. Verse 35, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He's not the miraculous baker. He is the miraculous bread. Jesus is the bread that gives permanent nourishment. The crowd were thinking at an earthly level, but Jesus was trying to get them to look up and see the heavenly picture. In the desert with the Israelites and Moses, the manna came down from the sky and it met their hunger for a time. But God sent Jesus down from the sky, so to speak, from the, from the throne room of heaven, but he provides the true bread that nourishes for eternity. He try, Jesus tries to correct their misunderstanding. He is the bread. And this is one of the occasions where for those who have ears to hear, he is saying that he is divine. This is one of his famous I am statements. And each of these I am statements reveals something amazing about his divinity. He himself is the food. He is the one who brings sustenance that nourishes spiritual life. We can only really find true life in him. Being a Christian is about leaving your old life, which does not satisfy, and coming to Jesus, which truly satisfies. Once you receive Christ and you believe in him, you receive the spiritual nourishment that you truly need. Now, the thing is, even though Jesus is offering himself um, as this gift, many still refuse. Look at verse 36. But as, uh, but as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. They had what they needed for spiritual nourishment in front of them, but they refused, some of them. And perhaps you're one of those people that really needs spiritual nourishment in your life now, and yet you still don't believe. Let me encourage you to taste and see that he is good. Give him a go. Ask Jesus into your life. Receive him as your Lord. He is going to accept you. He promises to accept you. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. God has his hands in our lives, even though sometimes we often don't even know it. And his Father is the Father God, God the Father, who picks us up and hands us to the Son. And you don't even necessarily realise this is happening to you. As far as you're concerned, you're the one coming to Jesus. And that's okay, it's, mystery, it's a mystery. You, but you don't come to Christ because of some kind of amazing idea to you. Sinful people don't have these kind of realisations. It's only when God does something in your soul and changes you that you suddenly want to turn to Jesus. It feels like it's us making that decision. But that's okay. Right now, you might be thinking here, perhaps God is doing that now in you, and you're thinking, maybe I, sh maybe I should go to Jesus, but he's not going to accept me because of all the things that I've done in my life, and, and I'm not the kind of person who could follow Jesus. But Jesus promises that he will not drive you away. He will accept you. He accepts everyone who comes to him because he loves you. He wants to be involved in your life. He wants to be your king. And this is why God sent him to earth, 
Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So as I wrap up, look at what true nourishment Jesus brings. If you are with him, God will raise you up from death on the last day of history. The salvation that Jesus brings is ultimate and final. Be comforted in this. So even if you are a Christian who feels undernourished, you can be assured that your eternal salvation is eternal and not based on how much you are feeling right now. How much you have a grip, how much you have a grip on Christ is not so much the point, but how much he has a grip on you is, is the point. And if he gives you new life, you have new life forever. Let's finish and pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you that you have provided us the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ. And we pray that we can be a church that not only feeds on him, but offers him to others. And um, we pray that we will be a spiritual nourished people and able to offer that spiritual nourishment to the community around us. Amen.